This is Ken Lubin, the host and founder of the Executive Athletes Podcast, and welcome to this week's episode. I want to thank everyone that's been listening, and thank you for the comments and feedback. They're awesome and an incredible help in this journey to making this podcast better and better each episode. Once again, this is unscripted and unedited, as I believe it it is the best way to get to really know the guest. Today's guest is Troy Howard, and Troy is taking a unique path to where he's gotten in the ski industry. And all the people that a lot of people listening know that I'm a big skier, so of course we get another skier. But his path is typically not the same way you get there. He actually grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, played hockey, played a number of sports, but he played actually Division One hockey in Wisconsin, which is we all know is a big, big league team um, in collegiate hockey. But in college, he actually came out of school, went to work for Anderson Consultant, where, who is now Accenture, where he stayed for eight years, but really started his love of running. And it was pretty unique. He started doing a little bit more road biking, more endurance running, hour-long runs turned into weekend-long runs that turned into multi-day type stuff really getting into the marathon space. He's run some of the biggest marathons in the world from Lisbon to Athens, New York, Boston, Hawaii, San Francisco. And one of his things, you know, that he is his little claim to fame. He qualified for Boston at the three Oh nine. He says that's not very fast, but that's still pretty fast. But more importantly, he's big into the ultra running space and he's completed a large number of hundred mile races. Um, but his first one, and actually ran the Hard Rock 100, which is probably one of the most legendary uh, races out there. And more importantly, he came in second, and the, the second fastest time on record. So he's a guru in this space, super psyched to talk to him. Um, but for the last nine years, he was with Vail Resorts, and now is currently working for Aspen Skiing Company. So he's overseeing all of Aspen's online systems. But a side note that's pretty unique, he has a heart condition called the, called, or known as a bicuspid aortic valve. I probably didn't say that right, but it's where his heart is 50% less efficient. So I can only imagine how many times he would have broken the record if he had a full speed there. But anyways, Troy, welcome to the show. You've got an amazing background. I'm super pumped to chat. Thanks a lot, Ken, and appreciate you taking the time to uh, have a little chat, and I'm really fortunate that you reached out, so looking forward to it. No, so hockey, growing up playing Division One hockey, which we all know is not an easy thing to do. Um, here in Boston, that's a, huge, that's a huge deal, we all know, but Wisconsin, Michigan, Maine, a lot of the other ones that are big out there, but then you turned into running. Talk to us a little bit about that and sort of that path and how that led you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, growing up, um, my dad was a, a lifelong coach, and you know, so I was really steered into hockey from the very beginning. And there wasn't a lot of real conversations around: Do I want to continue with hockey? Do I like hockey? It was just, just do it. Um, and so, where that sort of led me is is to a really you know fortunate path there to play for Wisconsin and. And uh, at an amazing college, you're right in my hometown, and that meant a lot to me. But what it also meant is growing up, you know, you really didn't get to do a lot of the other things that, that maybe, um, you know, some of the other kids and families that I was around 
were out doing. And, um, you know, that went, that ran the gamut from camping and backpacking to skiing or running and biking and everything. And so when I got out of college, you know, I was playing hockey, you know, almost every day and in pretty good shape as, as most hockey players that play that often are. And I, I just needed to stay in shape. Uh, and my mechanism for that was to grind out, you know, a 20 or 30 minute run and hate every step of the way. Uh, but that was really sort of how I got into running. And then through uh, a number of different friends uh, that had just encouraged me to, to do other bigger things, it sort of just over time grew into something that became a lifestyle. Nice. No, and, and that's, and that's how a lot of people start, right? They hate running. They running was always known as torture for a lot of people growing up, especially hockey players. And I was a ski racer and that was known as torture too. And all of a sudden it switch, it switches, right? And the, and the, the flipped or the switch flips talk to us then, you know, obviously you had some success with it by running marathons and then getting into the, the hundred milers. Talk to us a little bit about that progression and evolution. Yeah, you know, I think the biggest kind of switch for me was um, when I really discovered the possibilities out there for trail running. Uh, and when you get off of the road and you get onto the trail, uh, it's a it's a whole nother world out there. And I found that for me, I was never that fast on the road. Um, and I found that just being outside in nature and, and you know, basically the bigger the mountains, the better for me. Uh, I really, that's when sort of a pivotal point is when I had, was fortunate enough to meet and run with a, a group out in the East Bay of San Francisco called Team Diablo uh, that really showed me the ropes on how to eat, what to carry, what kind of equipment to use, what kind of shorts are good to carry all this stuff you got to carry with you. Uh, and it was much less about looking at your watch and how fast you were going, how long you had been running for, and it was much more about the experience. And I still really carry that through today where I don't really follow any training plans. I really go by how I feel. Uh, and when you feel good, you gotta take advantage of it. You gotta push hard and you gotta make yourself, you gotta make yourself almost puke uh, when you feel those, those days. Cause those days don't come very often. Uh, most days you don't wanna do it. Most days it doesn't feel great. You know, you, you get through it. Uh, but you got to have both. You got to have a, a good balance of both. So for me, it's really, it's about being outside and being on the trails and uh, just the beautiful country that we live in. No, and that's, and I love what you're saying there a bit about feel, right? I'm the same way. I don't follow any training plans. I go by feel. If your legs are working that day, great. If they're not, they're not, right? And you ease off. But like you said, when you feel good, you go hard and see what you can do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you make big gains on those days too. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've just really taken to, uh, you know, the more mountainous the trails, the better for me that just how I'm built, that seems to work best. And I also just enjoy it a lot more. So I, I absolutely love getting out there as much as I can. So talk to us about that hard rock 100 pulling the second fastest time in history. That had to be crazy. Yeah, it was really, it was, um, it was pretty transformational experience on a number of levels that first year I did hard rock. I've since finished it three other times, uh, hoping to get in again one of these years and, and get to five finishes. But that first year for me, I had done two prior 100s and done really well on those and finished second at both of those. 
and then I got into this lottery for hard rock and, you know, the, all the talk with my group out in California was, uh, are you sure you really want to sign up for that? Have you looked at that thing? Like it's off trail. It's up, you know, the average elevation is 11,000 feet through the whole thing. It storms every year. It's like, you're, it's, it's like a, it's a grown-ups hundred mile run. And, um, and you know, the more they say that, the more I'm just like, I got to do it. I got right. So I got, I want to storm even harder and more than you guys. Yeah, right. about. It's just like, you know, bring it, uh, you know, you sign it. That's sort of, you know, if it's raining, it's muddy, it's messy outside. It's like, good. That's, that's like great for me because I know so many people will sort of opt out at that point. And I, I really, the more misery, the better. So I got in, got into the lottery, um, went out there two weeks before with my wife, uh, you know, just to acclimate. We were living at, at sea level, wanted to get out there early, see some of the course. So I was out there every day kind of scouting the course as much as I could. And uh, in true hard rock fashion, uh, you can never really see the whole course. It's really tough to get to some spots. And, you know, so I got lost two or three times that, that first year. Uh, nothing too substantial, but probably added up to 30 minutes or something of, of uh, lost time there. And I just you know, started really slow and felt great the whole day and then just picked it up in the second half. And, you know, we get to the top, this last aid station's about six miles from the finish and about 5,000 feet to run down. And they said I was uh, on, I was in second place. So I knew I wasn't going to land, but they said, you're, you're still very close to breaking the old course record, uh, which was Scott Jurek. Uh, Jurek's wow. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I ran as hard as I possibly could to the finish to try and uh, uh, break his time, which I ended up doing by, I don't know, something less than 10 minutes. So for me, it was like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the course. I couldn't believe how great that, that, that event is organized, the volunteers, and then just the overall experience. So I was really lucky that then turned into, you know, my wife and I were hooked on Colorado and we eventually made the move out here largely because of that first year of hard rock. Wow. And that's amazing. And how do you train? Talk to us a bit about the training, right? You train by feel, don't follow training plans. What's your typical day like? Or Why not? Like, like any hockey player would probably tell you, I am not a natural runner. You don't, you don't, you don't, you're a hockey player or you're a runner. You story of my life. Uh, and so I'm not, I don't, I'm not really built to, to run every day. So that's where the biking comes in. Uh, and I bike uh, more than I run uh, in terms of volume and hours, just because, you know, it's, it doesn't take as much out of you. And yet you still get this amazing fitness from biking. So I will, uh, in a typical week when I'm training for a big event, I will be biking three or four days a week and I'll be running uh, usually no more than three days a week. Uh, so one long run on the weekend or a race on the weekend, and then two, two runs during the week. One's generally usually easier because I just feel terrible. And then the other one, if I'm lucky, I feel good and I push it. And in between that, I do all this biking. So I just, I really mix it up that way. How many hours are your typical rides? How many hours are your typical runs when you're doing it? Um, during the week, just, you know, because I, I, I've got a job, I got to get to work. I'm a morning person. So, you know, maybe I get a two hour run in during the week. Maybe usually it's an hour to hour and a half. And then on the weekend, you know, as you get closer and closer and get more fitness. Yeah. I mean, maybe a, my longest run would be 
20 to 30 miles, depending upon how much elevation change there is. Uh, and then I'll throw in to train for a hundred miler, I'll throw in at least one, uh, usually two 50 mile, um, I can't call them races, but you know, I'll, I'll enter a race and then just use it for training really. Right. No, or yeah, the 50 mile efforts to get out there to, to make it happen. What about, um, and talk to us a little bit, you know, we're going to shift gears here to the, the ski world, right. And COVID and, and what's going on because this is the biggest discussion going. I think right now Vermont is in like full lockdown and then, New Hampshire out in the east is like live free or die. So it's just the opposite. Bring everyone in. <laughs> Maine doesn't know what to do and neither does Massachusetts. So what's going on out west? What are you hearing out there? Yeah, no, that's a, you know, if, if anybody has the answer to that question, uh, you can make a lot of money right now. Uh, what we're approaching in, in just in general in Colorado, what we're seeing is um, people are going to try and open safely as much as they can. Uh, Vail Resorts opened Keystone Resort today. They did it through a reservation system. Um, that is one approach that a lot of the bigger ski companies uh, will likely go to is requiring reservations. Uh, but that, that will allow them to sort of throttle uh, how many guests that will be allowed on the mountain that would be in line with what they're approved uh, to operate at. Uh, for us, we open in a few weeks here at Aspen and we're still, we're still carefully watching, uh, everything, the, how the, how the cases are looking, what our County is uh, saying, what the state is saying, and we're going to, you know, make sure we're doing the right thing for, for our guests and, uh, try and make it still a really positive experience. Uh, everybody hopes that we don't have to put any restrictions in place, but everybody's ready to do that. And that includes us. Uh, food and beverage, you know, that's probably on once you're on the mountain is going to be a, a challenge for everybody. We've invested a lot in, in additional seating in terms of uh, temporary tents uh, at some of our bigger locations. Uh, we've got a lot of technology that we've been in the middle of implementing for online ordering and be able to pick up and then, you know, go maybe uh, eat a burrito somewhere that is uh, at a safe social distance. But what we all will, would say is um, whatever we think is going to happen is going to be wrong. And we're going to have to be, we're going to be really flexible this season. And so flexibility, being patient, working with changes uh, quite often is going to be the norm for this season. And so we're, we're just chomping at the bit to get open at this point though. No, I think so. What do you think? Do you think it's going to be a ton of people going to do it? Or is it going to be just the opposite, right? People are like, I don't want to deal with that. And I can't go inside to warm up. I think, you know, those I know a bunch of guys in the industry on the East Coast. And that's the big question is, mm -hmm. you know, is it going to be overwhelmed? Or is it going to be underwhelmed? Right? And I don't think there's really any equilibrium. No, it's a great, great question. Uh, again, hard one to answer. But what we're what we're seeing just in general in our industry and industries like ours and what we saw this summer is there's a huge demand to get outside and the more you can get outside and sort of spread out from people and uh, follow the right protocols there's a huge demand we had an amazing summer at our mountain bike park at Snowmass. we had an amazing summer of people taking the gondola up to experience the top of aspen mountain this summer we have a, a summer program at Snowmass where you can 
do a lot of summer activities and we had an amazing summer. Um, so what we, what we sort of glean from that is there's a lot of, de- lot of uh, demand to get outside and experience, you know, places like Aspen. So we're expecting, we're hoping and sort of expecting that we're going to have a decent amount of demand and we just want to make sure that demand is met with a great experience. Nice. No. And, and that's going to be super interesting. I know here in the East, it was, again, I, and it's not bad for people to be out there and actually being active, right. And getting outdoors and going hiking and riding their bikes and doing the whole backcountry scene. I know that's going to be a big thing here too. And I'm sure even bigger for you guys is the whole backcountry piece of the whole thing. You're absolutely right. So all the, all the shops here in this area, Backcountry gear is, is flying off the shelves. The inventory is super low. So if you're thinking about buying gear, do it now. E-bikes and just bikes in general sold out anywhere around this area in the whole Denver metro area. You can't buy a bike. You really hard to find skis and backcountry touring stuff right now. So you, you can kind of see, you know, if, if biking was any sort of indicator of what we might see this winter too, is yeah, backcountry, backcountry, and cross country and everything is going to be probably at record levels. Do you guys allow uphill access at Aspen? We do. We do. We, do. Uh, we have, we operate four mountains. They all allow uphill access. Uh, this year we're, we're um, there's actually a meeting this coming week for the public to discuss maybe some, some uh, changes to how we want to manage that to make sure it is safe. Everybody understands the rules. You follow the right route, but we're absolutely, very much a leader in the industry for supporting uphill access. Right. No, I know there's a lot of places in the East aren't big fans of it, but I think they're going to have to be in order to, you know, to put some even dollars and revenue into their pocket. Yeah. Yeah. But no, good stuff. So, you know, and and I want to shift gears back to actually a little bit about some of the things you're doing in in the ultra running space. Um, Talk to us about nutrition, right? How do you eat? How do you, you know, when, you, when you're doing a race or when you're training for a race, do you follow any specific diet or are you a lot sort of like your training plan where you just sort of go by feel? Mm-hmm. No, good question. I'd say during training, it is a lot by feel. Uh, you know, as you get into, uh, you know, training a lot for these things, you, you almost can't eat enough. And so it's less about, you know, is this the absolute best thing for me right now? And more about, whatever's right in front of me, I'll eat. Uh, there comes a point where that sort of changes, you know, you, I, you gotta be smart about, okay, is this gonna, this is gonna cause me problems tomorrow in my stomach or whatever. So I got to kind of back off the Tabasco and things like that a little bit. Uh, but you know, I, I, in general, uh, eat pretty healthy anyways. So it isn't like a big change. I don't say, okay, now I gotta like completely change the diet. Gotta go into training diet it's sort of that way all year round for me. And it's, it's a mix, you know, I'm, I'm just really uh, pretty lucky that, you know, my, my wife is always, uh, she does a great job of just cooking food and it's like, you put it in front of me, I'll eat it. I don't try and make it harder on her and uh, you leave it up to me and I'm eating nachos every night and macaroni and cheese. So (laughs) I'm just, you know, thankful to have something to eat in front of me. Um, And then during a race, totally different story though. Uh, I really simplify what I eat during a race. I usually uh, just uh, uh, get through on gels, uh, bananas at the aid stations, and boiled potatoes if they have them. And uh, in a hundred mile, maybe I'll eat one, maybe two 
some sort of energy bar. Again, I don't really care what kind it is, but if I feel like I can stomach it and I feel like I can chew it, then I'll, I'll eat maybe one or two energy bars, but it's largely goos and bananas. I know it's amazing how hard it is to chew when you're doing endurance events, right? It's like, it's almost a whole other muscle group that's part of the race that you don't even, you know, that you don't expect. I know for me, when I'm doing adventure racing or something like that, it's amazing. Like, you know, the muscles in your mouth are actually just as tired as everything else because you're throwing something in your mouth the whole time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, everything gets exponentially harder the longer the distances are, um, including eating, as simple as that sounds. And it's like, oh, I got to open this wrapper and then like bite off a piece of this bar and then I got to chew it. And while I'm trying to, it's just how, like, it sounds really easy. It was like, just eat. It's like, it gets, the simplest things become very, very hard you know, 20 miles or 20 hours into the No, now that's my next question. So what's your fastest time for running 100s? What are your typical times? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, because most of mine have been um, pretty mountainous, it's nothing impressive. I think, gosh, I think the second year at Angeles Crest, I ran a 19-hour or 25-minute finish time. I think that's my fastest. I think uh, I think I might have muted you, or maybe you muted yourself. Hey, Ken, I can't hear you any longer. Oh, that was me. I apologize. I hit mute by accident. My dog was barking, <laughs> and I might still uh, you might still hear the dog. My kids are, to all my listeners, they know I have two kids and I have a dog who sometimes they both get acting up. But anyways, so the main goal typically for running 100s, right, is typically break 24 hours. Is that typically what most people are aiming for? Yeah, yeah sort of like the subculture of 100 milers is uh, the general rule is if you break 24, you, you either get a belt buckle or you get a special, special belt buckle. Maybe it's silver or gold or it's got some leopard on it or something. Um, so yeah, that's a general good sort of mark for a hundred milers. If you can get under 24, it's sort of, um, you know, kind of a goal for a lot of folks. Nice. Uh, yeah. And so yeah, I mean, you don't do that at hard rock. you like, I think that you have 48 hours, you have two days to finish hard rock. So, you know, I think people would generally say if you can get under 30 hours there, you're running a fast time. What was your time? Uh, let's see. I think my fastest time there was 25 hours. And wow. 20 minutes or something. Yeah. That's moving when they're at the 40, it's a 48 hour cutoff. So nice work. Yeah. What are, what are your plans next? What's, what's great adventures do you have planned coming up? Well, you know, I kind of pivot to, um, to skiing, uh, in about a few weeks here, or as soon as we get enough snow where I can actually go uphilling. Um, and so what that means is I'll probably do one or two ski mountaineering events this year. There's something here in Aspen called the power of four, where you basically ski up and down uh, all four of our mountains. And that's a pretty, pretty tough elite event there that I've done a few times. So I want to do that. 
might do the Elk Mountain uh, Grand Traverse again, which is a ski mountaineering race overnight that goes from Crested Butte to Aspen. Um, and then I entered the Hard Rock Lottery, uh, and I find out in December uh, whether or not I get into that, which is next July. And, and that sort of forms my whole year is whether or not I get into Hard Rock. <laughs> I don't really like to have a backup plan until whether or not I know I'm in Hard Rock, and then I'll quickly throw together something if, I'm, if I don't get in. You'd think you'd get some sort of, you know, uh, priority because you, you know, have been in the top five. Uh, yeah, I've, I've finished at Hard Rock second twice, third once, and fifth once. Um, but the thing that you got to appreciate about Hard Rock, it's a really small race that a lot of people want to do. Right. And, you know, so I love to provide that option for other people to experience that course the way I did the first time and still as I do today. And so I, I really respect that um, their rules and their policies. And uh, if you don't, I think the only people that get automatic entries are the the female and male winners um, from the prior year's race. And I respect that rule. No, that makes sense too. Right. And I love what you said there. It's you want people to have the same chance and opportunity to, to, uh, to do what you've done. Troy, this has been awesome. This has been amazing. I've learned more about 100-mile races and everything else here. And, you know, I had to dig into the ski thing to see what's happening out there. But I think it's the same everywhere. So this has been great to have you on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Ken. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, thanks for all the listeners for tuning in. No, definitely. And where can people check you out or find more about who Troy Howard is? Well, that's a great question. I, I kind of uh, fly under the radar a little bit, uh, uh, but I'm on LinkedIn. Maybe that's my best. There you go. Um, I'll put them to LinkedIn and then stay under the radar. That's not a bad thing in today's world is being the guy who brushes it from, from under the radar. So I respect Strava. you. For the, for the fitness folks, I'm on Strava as well. So Okay. I'll put your Strava link on because that's, those are always fun, right? That's competition among competition. I don't put Strava on now because <laughs> I'm too slow. So I, I try to enjoy it. But anyway, so no, again, Troy, this was awesome. I thank you for your time. And to anyone who's listening or has any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at kenofexecutiveathletes.com. Hopefully everyone out there is going to be hitting the snow here soon. And there's not as many issues as that uh, we're afraid that we may or may not face. So go out there, make it happen, have a great winter. And this is actually recorded the Friday of the week after the election. So we're still uncertain who the president is and we'll be seeing what happens there. So enjoy, have a great weekend and go out and make it happen. Thanks for listening.